The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. that I got of it was um, how very, very frightening it must have been to have been a fighter with that sort of weapon in use against you. That was Ranulph Fiennes talking about soldiers' experiences in the Battle of Agincourt. He himself explains afterwards, he said, I was sure I was going to be killed. If I was going to be killed anyway, what would it look like if the leader of the Communist Party was seen to die a coward? And that was Paul Preston, describing an incident in the life of Spanish communist Santiago Carrillo. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast, I'm Matt Elton, the books editor of BBC History magazine. The Battle of Agincourt in 1415 was a key English victory against the French in the Hundred Years' War. It was also, as the explorer and historian Sir Ranulph Fiennes discovered when researching his new book, one that many of his ancestors were involved in, on both sides of the fighting. I met up with Ranulph in his office on Exmoor to find out more about his views of the battle and started by asking him what he made of the character of Henry V. I did not warm to him, but I certainly thought that pretty, pretty determined character, absolutely determined character. Whether that could be called fundamentalist nowadays? Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, he he was like ISIS mm. um, in terms of his absolute one vision. And when things delayed at Harfleur and he could see that it, that it would be highly lethal mm. and statistically disastrous probably to head inland with, with his remaining yeah. number of troops, quite a lot of them indisposed. Um, but his vision... He was single-minded at that. Totally single-minded. Yeah. Um, very fearless, whether he was just born being fearless or not, I don't know, but um, a wonderful leader of men, but whether you approve of the way that he's leading his men or not Isn't. is rather difficult to say. Plus, with, ret- with hindsight, it's um, liable you can judge people very wrongly. Mm. That's true. You write in the book um, that obviously when you're doing expeditions, there's a whole period of sponsorship and raising money and preparing for it, which is crucially important. How, how did his planning for the war go, did you think? 
Well, I mean, I spent seven years just going for my particular... I didn't want to be king of France, but I didn't want to be the first human being to circumnavigate the globe. Mm. And it took me and my supportive wife, because I was lucky in that respect, and a wonderful group of people who are basically still with us 40 years on, um, took us seven years of planning to get everything right, knowing that when we set out on our ship with all our stuff ready, it had to be within two weeks or with that year. Yeah. And with Henry, he had to set out, you know, with the the way ships were likely to sink uh, with the first gale. Yes. Um, by the end of July, really. And mm. um, so it's the same sort of... I did understand yeah. that he had, you know... He was very organised, very hard work and meticulous. Yeah. Yeah. Which he needed to be. How, how did you go about raising an army at this period of English history? Well, you, you do it by the, the same method as we do it now, which is to attract people rather than press gang them. Okay, yeah. So you, you do need, therefore, Parliament on your side, mm. because that's where the money comes from. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it was hugely he, costly. He did, he did get a little bit of money from the likes of Dick Whittington and so on, Mayor of London, but which still today, you know, parties do get money, don't they, from yes. people rather than trades unions and that. Sure, yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, so in the lead-up to, we've got the, them heading over to the continent for this battle. Um, how, how ready do you think they were to fight? After the siege of Harfleur, their timetable was put back because mm. it took them a lot longer than they thought it would. They found an awful lot of people got dysentery, which was not anything new for obvious reasons, which I've gone into in the book. Mm. Pretty disgusting. And, um, yeah, so their numbers were not terribly big in the first place. Yeah. And he knew perfectly well that despite the Burgundian or Leonist Armagnac problem, there were likely to be big responses regionally, including our own finds reaction um, from the regions because after a bit you could see that the English or the not the Anglo-Norms the English yeah. are attacking their country okay. so even the enemies come together briefly to dispel them yeah. and Henry must have known that that was very likely okay. so he was taking a huge risk Yeah, yeah. and I, I think that he really did depend on the longbow he really did depend on the longbow. And that is why I dispute Shakespeare calling it the English army. It right. wasn't the English army, it was the British army, and they were mostly Welsh or Cheshire, who in those days were pretty much Welsh anyway. Mm. Uh, a few Lancastrian, I don't quite know why they did both <laughs> stuff, but um, yeah. So he was depending on something which actually turned out to be correct. Okay. Um, but he did it very well. He, yes. he used the superiority in a very sensible way. So he was a good military commander, you would say? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I don't deny that at all. He okay. definitely was. And you mentioned the longbow there. You and also, up... in my opinion, he chose his leaders very, very well. Okay. And the four top leaders, um, Duke of York, his other family... But under that level of brothers and uncles, you've got my four kins, yeah. cousins. Yeah. You've got Roger, you've got James, all their men from Kent. Uh, you, you've got the two Johns, John Cornwell and um, John Holland. And they were sent out on all the perilous missions. Mm. 
including first landing to see what was going on, where the French were. Yeah. And later, when they had to cross rivers, they were up, up front and so on and so forth. And right in the centre yeah, of all of this. Right, right in the centre of it. Yeah. And um, yeah. from the French side, and, and when I was writing about the French side, I found myself wanting them to do well. And uh, young Robert finds the last of the, of the real core of our family. Mm. You know, it's rather sad that the English Finzes were very largely responsible for wiping out the French Finzes who were their cousins. Yes. Well, that's the thing about it, I suppose. You had cousins against cousins, so somebody yeah. was going to come off badly, I guess. Yeah. That, that, that's true. And it's such a shame that um, the, the constable, Robert's mm. nephew, who was basically his, um, didn't have sons, so he was like his stepson, mm. taking over the name and so on, hadn't also had any sons by the time he was killed at Agincourt. Mm. I did um, get help from a cousin who I've acknowledged in the book, who had spent a great number, a great amount of time researching to try and find French finders. Right. And she told me in an email about four months ago that she definitely had not been okay. able to trace any. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the longbow there, um, which you had to go at shooting. Is that right? Um, I was brought up when I came over from South Africa to the UK. Um, I brought with me my longbow, which was 15 pound pull. These guys are 120 pound pull. Wow. When I was in Sussex, when I was a teenager, until I was about 17, um, in the woods down there, I used, um, with my friends, a um, 60 pound pull. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you also went to the battlefield, I gather. I've been to the battlefield, but nothing to do with this book. Just so, a separate thing entirely? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Did it help you get a sense when you were I mean, writing this book? Yeah. It's it's flat. Mm. It's very agricultural. And um, a lot of people make money touring battlefields, whether the battlefields are 100 years ago or 150 yeah. years ago, or in this case, yes. rather... <laughs> um, um, so how, how important do you think that the landscape of the battlefield was in the outcome of this, of this conflict? Well, it was a very important factor, but whether the longbow would not have had the same result if it had been a slightly different scenario yeah. is terribly difficult to hypothesise. Sure, OK. Obviously, to have, if you're a smaller unit you do need to go for a place where the opposition are narrowed, mm. confined. Okay. And so the fact that they ended up with the French choosing a place which confined themselves yes. was very lucky for Henry. What factors then do you think contributed to the French defeat? Well, the ones which I put in the book, which basically consist of the longbow, the fact that all the bows, crossbow and battle bows of the French were put stupidly right at the back where they, they couldn't fire shots. Okay. The French hadn't come into their superiority of cannons by then, so they managed to prove that one Brit was shot by a cannonball. Right. One. Okay. Um, so all their um, projectiles were nullified. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. So the only projectiles were what were held by the men at arms right. and, the, and the cavalry. Okay. And um, the mud did what it's done many times before, including Poitiers. 
which was to render the horses in terms of impact redundant. Okay. Yeah. So what the, the French did manage to do, including cousin Robert, mm. was to be very brave and very determined because you have to be to crawl in heavy armor through mud and over many dead bodies. And, and they managed almost to break the line despite the long bows, despite yeah. the mud, and despite the confinement, which meant that they couldn't really fight properly because they were so sardine. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It is interesting to me that you, obviously, when you were writing from the French point of view, you felt for them, and then from the other point of view, you felt from them. Was, was that hard writing about the battle in that sense because these people were... Yeah, when I was writing about Robert, and, and I thought, yeah, he's, he's, they, they've got... You know, he was with Vendôme, the Count of Vendôme, okay. and they were after the Duke of York's lot, right. which was one of the royal banners. Yes. And they actually, 18 of them specifically wanted to get the king, hmm. and they were sort of like a brotherhood, and they actually got right to the, wow. the king yeah. and um, managed to hurt his crown, which is pretty good going. Hmm. They managed to very nearly kill his, his brother, one of his brothers, um, they, they did very well indeed. Of the 18, all of them were killed by Roger and James and the two Johns mm. and their little groups of men. So you've got Robert, who I'm really keen to do incredibly well, yes. and then I've got to change to the next chapter where I've got four of my kin. You know, I, I really, at the Battle of Agincourt, um, was rooting for... Robert and his friend de Lannoy. Okay. I mean, trying to deduce my own internal rationale, I think it's because of the underdog, going, going for the underdog. Okay. And by then, it was apparent to me that the underdog wasn't the Brits. No. It was okay. the French. Despite being hugely vast, more yeah. numbers of them, you felt they were of, you know, underdogs. But by the time it got like that, the few that got through... French that got through yes. were really in trouble. What do you think the wider uh, implications of the victory for Henry and England were after the battle? It looked as though um, you're going to, I think I use the word touche, you're going to get the, for all of us now, when I say all of us, I mean those of us who know something about history, which is a very small minority, um, we can think to ourselves, well, yeah, the French attacked the English and uh, dominated us, the Anglo, the, the actual Saxons, um, for 300 years or so. And therefore you've got the Duke of Normandy becoming the King of England. Right. But now, thanks to Henry V, we've got the King of England becoming the King of France, okay. which Henry VI was. Yes. So in pure chessboard terms, you can say touche. Okay, yes. But it, that means nothing. <laughs> no. In, in terms of trade, which does mean something, mm. um, Henry V got to a situation where our trade opportunities were pretty damn good. Okay. And as a result of those kings having to fight the French, 
they started a navy, including the one that is treated rather badly, Richard, you know, King Richard. Yes. Second. Yes. Um, he actually, although you can say, and a lot of people have said that that king, that king started the, the navy, the British navy, which gave us the empire. Mm. Um, it's really the Hundred Years' War which gave us a navy, which yeah. then learned how to fight in clever ways, and which then got to be piratical, i.e. with famous naval people who were navy but were also pirates. Okay, yes. And that led on to Queen Elizabeth, the Elizabethans, you know, and Walter right. Raleigh and all that lot. And that led to us eventually outdoing the Dutch and the Portuguese and the Spanish. Mm. Um, the French then sort of also totted along in the Caribbean and all over the place. But, but you know, the world language now um, is English. Mm. So from the Hundred Years' War, the, there's a, a big beginning of this little tiny island with its four little people going right out, yeah. So which it wouldn't have done if it hadn't had that stress no. and, and fights. Talking specifically about the Battle of Agincourt, how do you think it should be commemorated? The anniversary is coming up. How, how do you think we should mark? Well, the French, as you know, have... Um, uh, annual sort of meetings where they point out that there actually was per perfectly equal between the various forces, whereas the um, Brits don't seem to care a damn and an awful lot of them don't know about it. Mm. So any form of um, celebration of, of it would be, from a British side, absolutely remarkable and down to a sort of niche of historians. Yeah. Um, and even with the connection I've got to it, which I now know is huge, yeah. and yet two years ago I didn't know about. So never mind, it, no. people who mention the word Agincourt, now, in a hundred years' time, there'll be even fewer people who know what the hell you're talking about. So would you like to see it commemorated? Would you like to see it being made a, th a thing of, an event of? Mm, I can't see particularly why it should be made a big event of any more than... And, if there was somebody who was keen to use it for political ends today, mm. in the same way as Mr. Salmon can use Bannockburn for political ends, even though the Scottish and the English have fought together mm. in the First World War and the Second World War, which is long after Bannockburn as brothers, that it's pointless, you know, it, nobody's going to be able to use that one to a political advantage. Okay. So you think there's no political will necessarily to to to, to mark it? Absolutely no political will on part of the, the French or the English, other than our ongoing um, sort of humorous <laughs> getting at each other. Yes. What was the thing that surprised you the most uh, in the course of your research for this book? Apart from the amazing behaviour of so many of my direct ancestors, which was, you know, either a pleasant surprise or a shock, depending on what they got up to. Mm. Um, particularly at, at, during the Hundred Years' War, when they were right to the fore there on both sides, that was the biggest surprise for me. If um, people who'd read this book were to go, were to leave the book with a changed impression of this whole period of history, what new impression would you like them to have? I can only judge by when I came to this period, yeah. how it reacted to me, the impression that I got of it, mm. was um, 
how very, very frightening it must have been to have been a fighter with that sort of weapon in use against you. Yeah, okay. And the sort of lack of medical treatment, um, the fact that if you were in heavy armour, you knew you could be lying under other bodies and then your visor would be lifted up and you'd have your throat slit. Um, no, I, I think it must have been absolutely horrific. I've seen a lot of okay. people killed. Um, I've shot people and, and, you know, it's not painful. But they knew the horrible wounds that, that they were likely to get. Yeah. Um, and so when they were sitting in their am ambushes or waiting for the Battle of Agincourt, it must have been terrifying. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you started actually by saying that you, you weren't sure why they didn't get a military historian to to write this book. Yeah. But actually, I think your experiences really come through. Um, do you think there's any military tactics or uh, failings that you think really come across, or successes, I guess? Is there anything that your experiences helped you? Uh, at Agincourt, I was impressed by Henry's behaviour. Okay. I was impressed by the Duke of York's behaviour, particularly on the way between Harfleur mm. and um, the Agincourt area, Maisoncelles. Um, so, Duke of York was a very good relation to have for him. Mm. Um, he chose his reconnaissance patrol people, and I'm not saying that because they were my, my kin, the four of them, yeah. chose them very well. Um, he had discipline, not too much, but not too little, and he knew when to hang someone in, in, in public. Mm. He was pretty merciful compared with an awful lot of people who'd been in, in his possession his position but then of course it furthered his dream to be king of France and therefore the people of France he didn't want to frighten them right off no um, so he was shrewd in that sense yes yeah. ab absolutely that was Ranulph Fiennes Agincourt My Family The Battle and The Fight for France is out now published by Hodder and Stoughton in the UK and the US you can hear more from Ranulph in the November issue of BBC History magazine which has just gone on sale also in this month's edition, you'll find articles on the Peasants' Revolt, Napoleon, Poland in the Second World War and the history of Germany. You can get hold of the magazine in all good news agents and digitally. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. And now it's time for the history news with our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman. A set of paintings by Sir Winston Churchill is being offered to the nation following the death of the former Prime Minister's youngest daughter earlier this year. The paintings, which depict personal moments in Churchill's life, including holidays and family scenes, are currently on display at the family home, Chartwell, in Kent. The Churchill family has offered the pictures to the nation in lieu of inheritance tax. The government will decide next year whether it will accept this deal. Art historian David Coombs told the BBC the paintings are a national treasure of major historical and artistic importance. 
In other news, newly transcribed medical records show that First World War soldiers suffer from sexually transmitted diseases, fevers, rheumatism, piles and wasp stings. From the records of 30,000 men treated in field hospitals, the Genealogy Service Forces War Records has compiled a list of common medical complaints from those on the Western Front. It shows that more than 5% of cases involve sexually transmitted diseases, including gonorrhea and syphilis, and that many soldiers suffer from trench fever spread by lice. Dominic Hayhoe, Chief Executive of the Forces War Records, told The Telegraph, Wet, cold, squalid conditions of trench warfare brought with it untold discomfort and suffering. From conditions such as gunshot wounds, trench foot and mustard gas poisoning to tonsillitis, Spanish flu and even ingrowing toenails, few men escaped unscathed. Meanwhile, new evidence suggests that the Greek Bronze Age ended 100 years earlier than was previously thought. According to new radiocarbon analysis, conventional estimates for the collapse of the Aegean civilization at around 1025 BCE may be incorrect by 70 to 100 years. Archaeologists from the University of Birmingham selected 60 samples of animal bones, plant remains and building timbers excavated at Syros in northern Greece to be radiocarbon dated. The university's Dr Ken Wardle said, These new results tell a story that is totally independent of, and rather different from, the conventional historical accounts of the date of the end of the Greek Bronze Age. This is a fundamental reassessment and is important not just for Greece, but in the wider Mediterranean context. It affects the ways in which we understand the relationships between different areas, including the hotly debated dates of developments in Israel and Spain. Thanks for that, Charlotte. Before our next interview, I'd just like to mention that it is now just one week to go until our History Weekend Festival in Malmesbury. It's still not too late to buy tickets for a few of the talks. Head to historyweekend.com for more information and to book your tickets. Our next interview is with Paul Preston, one of the world's leading experts on 20th century Spain. Paul's latest book is a biography of Santiago Carrillo, a Spanish communist politician whose lengthy career encompassed the civil war, many decades in exile and then a dramatic return to the country following Franco's death. Carrillo was also a man who Paul had known well for a number of years. Our editor Rob Attar visited Paul in his offices at the London School of Economics to get the lowdown on Carrillo's remarkable life and to find out about the peculiar challenges of writing this biography. What made you first decide to embark on this biography? Well, I'd never really intended to write a book about Carrillo as such. However, I had been accumulating material on him ever since the 1970s. I mean, I'd I'd lived in Spain under the Franco dictatorship while I was doing my PhD. During that time, in my head, I was living in the 1930s. So my awareness of what was going on politically at the time was to do with things like people who I'd see in an archive every day would suddenly go missing for a month and when they came back looked as if they'd been badly beaten and then talking to them it turned out of course they'd been arrested and so you know one got an an awareness of it at at, at that level and then when I came back to to live in England I was teaching at Queen Mary College in the in the East End and through people in the Spanish department, I, I kind of got in with a, a community of Spaniards who, it turned out, were connected to the great democratic front organisation that was opposing Frank. It was called the Junta Democrática. And there was a sort of London branch, so I used to go to the meetings, joined in. 
And then I became their kind of interpreter for public meetings. And so I met all the top brass of the, of, you know, because they would come to London. Um, and I was a sort of interpreter and I was also a liaison with the British political establishment. So I'd, you know, take them to the House of Commons to meet ministers and so on and act as interpreters. So I got to meet, you know, a, a lot of the people who actually are in this book, including Carrillo. So that gave me access, and my big ambition at that time, I, by, obviously, democracy came back to Spain, or limited democracy came back in 1977. In uh, 1978, the book that I'd been writing in Spain, which was on the origins of the Spanish Civil War, and in Spanish it's called The Destruction of Democracy in Spain, came out. And I had this idea for a trilogy, and the... if. The third bit of the trilogy came out in the 1980s. That was called The Triumph of Democracy, and it was all about the, the transition to democracy. And the middle bit was going to be called The Struggle for Democracy. But in the end, I mean, I, got, I collected vast amounts of material. I had a garage full of clandestine newspapers and documents and so on, you know, the whole of the, the anti-Franco struggle. And I didn't do it. I didn't finish the book. I wrote number of articles and so on. I didn't finish the book because, in a way, that long-term struggle against Franco wasn't what brought democracy back. Democracy was an entirely different process, sort of transaction. So I'd collected all this material, and I kind of kept up with it and so on. Anyway, and, and then I'd gone into other things. I wrote a biography of Franco, a biography of the king, lots of other things, books on the Spanish Civil War. Kind of kept tabs on Carrillo as he was publishing more and more books. I mean, he, he spent, he left politics effectively, he was out of it by 1983, but spent the last 30 years of his life writing books full of lies about himself. And I, you know, I used to buy the books as they came out and I'd read them and think, oh my God, how can he possibly, how can he get away with saying that? Anyway, so he died um, in 2012 and I wrote a long obituary in The Guardian and several publishers got in touch with me and said, you know, this guy sounds really interesting, we never heard of him, could you be persuaded to, to write a biography? And my first reaction was, no, I mean, I'm not interested. And then I thought, but I've got all this material. And when I went back and looked at the material, I thought, you know, I've got enough to write several thousand pages, let alone a short biography. So I set out to do it and also various, I mean, there was stuff, I, stuff that I got at the time that I'd done it. I'd, I did a lot of work in the Communist Party archive in the first half of the 80s. And there was a lot of material I'd collected I'd never really looked at. You know, I had boxes and boxes of photocopies and so on. And when I looked at it, it, was, it started to be really alarming because I think I'd always thought... Carrillo was a bit of a liar, but that overall I accepted the conventional view of him as someone who'd done a lot to bring democracy back to Spain. But when I started to, to get into it, I, well, of course, I should say that the, the book I wrote before the Carrillo was The Spanish Holocaust. And since in The Spanish Holocaust I tried to look at atrocities on both sides, I had in fact discovered that one of the biggest lies that Carrillo told was that he'd had nothing to do with the atrocities in the Republican zone that took place in Madrid in November of, of, of 1936. Now, 
the, the extreme right in Spain has always blamed Carrillo and said, you know, he was solely responsible for that. Well, that was actually nonsense, but he played a very important role. Mm. The the atrocities that the they're known collectively as Paracuellos because that it's a place near the Baracas Airport, which is where the bulk of the killing took place. And effectively, there are sort of three stages to this massive atrocity. The, if you like, the idea, the inspiration, the authorization, and Carrillo wasn't important enough for that. There was the bureaucratic organization of it, and he was absolutely at the heart of that. And then there was the implementation of it, you know, the people who actually did the killing. So of the, I don't know, maybe 15 people most important in this, you know, the biggest massacre on the Republican side, Carrillo was one of the most important. He wasn't the most important, but he was you know, well up there. So I'd already done quite a lot, and that had, if you like, drawn my attention to the extent to which he told lies. I mean, the and over the years, because the extreme right in Spain wanted to blame him for the whole thing, he'd done maybe 50 interviews and written about it in 13 books of memoirs and so on. And in every one, he gave a different version. And the different versions, what they had in common was him saying, I had nothing to do with it. But they all gave details. It was, you know, I arrived late. It, it had all happened by the time I got there. Or it never happened until after I left. But when you put them all together, and of course a lot of other research, his, his real role uh, was seen in highlight. So that, apart from all the work that I'd done previously when I was interested in the anti-Franco struggle in the Communist Party, I had that part already done. And that, had, if you like, alerted me to just the scale that he had lied about himself. And then I started to put it all together. And the thing I found almost more shocking, although not on the same scale, were the murders that he'd authorised and had committed. I don't think he ever personally killed anyone, but that he had a squad of people who did his bidding. And... You know, there were there were murders of people who, for whatever reason, he feared they you know they they might reveal mistakes he'd made, or they uh, followed a different line from the one he 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 followed. That actually that he had authorised a lot of murders, and his treatment of those who opposed him was just utterly appalling. And in particular, some of the women in the party. One of the things that's I think particularly interesting about him is, which is indicating the fact that he only died recently is how incredibly young he was when he first came to prominence. How was he able to become such a significant figure at, in his late teens and early 20s? The way in which Carrillo sort of leapt to the top within the Socialist Party, because, because he has really... There are three, Carrillo has three careers. There's his early career where he re leaps to astonishing prominence within the Socialist movement, and that's between... I mean, really, he's born in 1915, and that's from the end of the 20s until 1934. And maybe he goes into jail in 1934 for his role in um, an uprising that took place in October 1934. From 1936 onwards, he's an absolutely hardline Stalinist, with obvious variations and so on. And then from 1983, he's a, he's a sort of national treasure who writes lies about himself. But that early period, his quite remarkable rise is to do with the fact that his father, Venceslao Carrillo, was a very prominent trade union leader and an intimate friend of the leader of the entire socialist movement, Francisco Laro Caballero. 
And, and Laro Caballero almost began to see Carrillo as a kind of second son. But the f two families were very, very close. So that connection, first of all, when Carrillo was 13 years old, got him a job sweeping up in the, the Socialist Party's printing works where they did they put published their, their newspaper, El Socialista. And then from that he got a job as a journalist, first of all just writing down, you know, copying down parliamentary speeches. And then bit by bit um, he, he became involved, we're still all this in very, you know, in absolutely double quick time. By the time he's 18, he's the head of the socialist youth movement. And, and he's a real firebrand and he's arguing for the the, the the socialist movement needs to be turned into a Bolshevik movement. And that's how he gets involved in, in the revolutionary events of October 1934. But the key is family connections. As always, it's who you know. So he, he's brought into the socialist movement and quite quickly he then transfers to the communists. And why did you think he did that? How much of that was down to the fact that he visited Moscow and met some of the kind of leaders of the Soviets? His conversion from being a sort of, you know, a man with a, or a young man with a very big future in the Socialist Party to becoming a communist goes back some time. I mean, first of all, you've got to remember that in the 1930s, leftists all over the world had a very idealised view of the Soviet Union, that the Soviet Union was the home of revolution, it was the mother of revolutions and so on. So he starts off with an admiration for communism, not shared in fact by his mentors, his father and, and, and Laro Caballero. And when he's in jail, he's actually spotted by communist recruiters and he's groomed. The senior representative of the Comintern in Spain, who was an Argentinian called Vittorio Codovila, used to go in and visit him, pretending to be a family member, and had basically what the communists wanted was, was a unity. They wanted to unify the socialist movement and the the, the Communist Party. The Communist Party was very small, the Socialist Party was very big. And so Carrillo was groomed, and when he got out of jail, when the Popular Front elections took place in the middle of February of 1936, the, the left won, and the prisoners were, were, were freed. And almost immediately, Carrillo was offered the chance to go to a Communist Youth International Congress in Moscow, where he was treated as a big star. And this must have been amazing, you know, for a, for a guy who'd just turned 20. And all these great heroes, Manwilski, Dimitrov, you know, the hero, the man who had held off the Nazis in the Reichstag fire trial and so on. And they all treated him as an equal. And of course, he was driven around a chauffeur-driven car, introduced to caviar and vodka. Absolutely loved it. And when he comes back, he's no longer the socialist firebrand. He's already a loyal Stalinist apparatchik. You know, he's got his his eye on rising within the party. And considering he's still very young, the fact that he has so much influence and he's being so widely courted, what was it about him that people saw so much potential in? He was always immensely hardworking. He always had the gift of the gab. I mean, he was a very, very intelligent man. And at the time, his ability to adjust to the political needs of the day you know he was a he was a very good orator uh, he was an incredibly good organizer i say in the book you know this this is a book about a man with virtually no personal life because he really did work every hour there was on his career and that meant of course in the early stages working to to f first of all to forward the 
the youth movement of the Socialist Party, and then when he became a communist, to 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 put you know to push the the Communist Party, and particularly, of course, what he achieved very quickly was the unification of the Socialist Youth and the Communist Youth, and that became during the Civil War, if you like, the the reservoir, the human reservoir that fed the Republican armies during the Civil War. That did wonders for his career within the Communist Party. You know, he, he seemed to be the man who had brought hundreds of thousands of members into the party. And we talked about the massacre that he was involved in, but what was his major role during the Spanish Civil War? Basically, it was organising the what's called the, the, the JSU, the, the Juventudes Socialistas Unificadas, the United Socialist Youth. Of course, this was the unity or the unification of the tiny communist youth with the much bigger socialist youth, and to as to sweeten the pill to the socialists who effectively lost the the youth movement, which was it was really the the seedbed from which all the future leaders were to come. That pill was sweetened by the united youth movement having socialist in its in its title. But for instance, of its executive committee of 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 fourteen people, thirteen were communists. You know, so during the war, Carrillo basically was a recruiter, he, he maintained the strength of the, of, of the JSU, and that was of immense importance to the Communist Party, and indeed to the Republic. Let, let, let it be said that the Republic, you know, the Popular Army, as it was called, the, the Ejército Popular, the People's Army of the Republic, needed those recruits that came from, from the left-wing youth movements. And by the time the war ends, is he then already the effective leader of the Spanish Communists? No, he's a long way off. I mean, the Civil War ends in awful circumstances. Basically, there's a military coup, and I'm simplifying massively here, but there's a military coup by what one might call fifth columnists, in other words, by people within the army who basically sympathised with Franco, who want to bring the war to an end. They used massive war weariness, and they have the advantage, they, they secure an, an alliance with the anarchists who hate the communists, for again, another long, long story. And so at the, at the very end of the war, well, a number of the communist leadership had left when Catalonia fell. Catalonia fell at the end of January of 1936, and Carrillo was one of those who went to France at that time. A lot of senior leaders came back to Spain. Carrillo didn't. And later on, told a series of, of utterly fallacious stories about why he hadn't come back. But anyway, he, he remained in, in, in France. Finally, uh, on the 6th of March, the bulk of the, the communist leadership are forced to leave, um, fleeing from arrest by the, the, the second military coup that, that's taken place. And he's in France for a while. And then late in 1939, he goes to Moscow. I believe, and I've got a lot of circumstantial evidence, that he was being trained by the NKVD and is, again, being groomed. He's sent in early 1940 to New York, where the man who is said to be his NKVD controller, Leonid Eitingen, who was organising the murder of Trotsky. So he went to work with Eitingen in New York. It's not known exactly whether he played any role in the murder of Trotsky, but it's worth remembering that the murder of Trotsky was something that used Spanish communists in exile. And he was in New York for a while, didn't like it, he had no gift for languages, 
and then managed to persuade the top brass that he'd be better off in Latin America. And he spent the next few years between Cuba, Argentina and Uruguay. He came back to Spain and he's still, he's a mem- by now he's a member of the Politburo, the Spanish Communist Party. He comes back first of all to Lisbon, he's in Lisbon for a while, then he goes to North Africa, where of course there are a lot of Spanish exiles. And then after the south of France has fallen, the German occupiers have been expelled and they, 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 effectively the French resistance, with massive Spanish participation, controls the south of France. He goes back, well, he doesn't go to Spain because he goes to France. And this is where the big, one of the big leaps forward in his career takes place because the man who is in charge of the Communist Party at this stage is a man called Jesus Monthon. Jesus Monthon was a leader, came from a, a fairly wealthy family. He could have had a comfortable war, you know, he could have used his family's wealth, but he, he stayed in France, played a major role in the organisation of the French resistance and in keeping the Spanish Communist Party alive in France. In 1943, he'd gone back into Spain and was making tremendous progress in reviving the Spanish Communist Party within Franco Spain. And Carrillo arrived in France and seems to have decided that his, his own career in advancement required the destruction of Jesus Monthon. And he set about destroying Monthon. Now, the first thing, Monthon had actually made a mistake, although it wasn't an entirely uh, you know, uniquely one-person mistake. Having got rid of the Germans in the south of France, the, the very high percentage of Spaniards who were in the French resistance were desperate to go back into Spain. And they had great hopes to invade Spain, and they thought that this would provoke an uprising against Franco. An invasion took place. Carrillo arrived hoping to take advantage of it, you know, to, to share in the glory. In the end, the massive superiority of the Francoist forces that defeated the invasion, it, it's called the invasion of the, the Val d'Aran, which is a valley in the Pyrenees. And so, although a withdrawal, a retreat had already been ordered, Carrillo rewrote the history that he'd gone to stop this mad adventure, and in fact he'd gone to join in the glory, that it was him who'd ordered the retreat, when in fact the retreat was already underway. And he then used his close relationship with an, a, a certain amount of psychophancy, his close relationship with Dolores Ibarri, La Passionaria, of course, as the Secretary-General of the party, to denigrate Monthon, to imply that Monthon was responsible for every disaster that had happened, that actually he was an agent provocateur, that he was a spy working, first of all, for the Germans, then he was a spy working for the British and the Americans and so on. And eventually, he had plans to murder Monthon, and Monthon, luckily, one says in inverted commas, luckily was arrested by the Spanish police before Carrillo's hitmen could get to him, and he he was then in jail for 20 years, and then Monthon was finished as as a leader of the party. Carrillo had no compunction having people bumped off if, he, if it suits his agenda then? Absolutely not. I mean, he had to be relatively careful. He would destroy people, if you like, intellectually and ideologically and have them cast into outer darkness by building a case that they were fascist spies, American spies, and then later on they became Titoist spies. Whatever the 
you know, whatever the crime of the day in Moscow was, Carrillo could have people smeared as as, as guilty of that crime. But he he did also he had a a group of of, of hitmen under his orders who were all had all been trained in in Russia, and they killed. It's not known how many people were killed, but it's probably at least thirty people who were in the guerrilla fight within Spain and for whatever reason either disobeyed orders or argued against his life. And at this stage, we're talking from 1946 to 1951, Carrillo's job, he was he's in Paris, but his job is to run the guerrilla war against Franco. And he hasn't really got a clue about what's going on in Spain. Some of his orders are absolute madness. And it's when people argue and point out the unrealism of some of these orders that he has them eliminated and so the whole time when he's in exile is he close to moscow he's very close to moscow traveling back and forth is not that easy but occasionally he goes i mean at one point in 1947 he spent quite a lot of time because there was concern within the soviet union about spanish exiles who wanted to leave the soviet union you know they had family in mexico say and they who would offer to pay for them you know, pay, pay for the travel to, to go to live in Mexico and so on. And Carrillo was sent to put a stop to this. So, yes, he was very close to, to Moscow. Of course, the, the Spanish party was totally dependent on Moscow. Salaries were paid by Moscow. You know, there, was, there was no income, obviously no income coming in for the Spanish party. And Carrillo was always ultra careful to be... 100% in tune with what the Kremlin wanted. So do you think that was more an ideological, personal ideological thing or was it just being pragmatic that these are the people to stay in touch with? It's impossible to say whether he actually believed it. I mean, obviously there were many, many communists who believed that if, if the party line coming from Moscow was X, whatever it was, then it should be obeyed. I mean, a very good example, of course, is when Russia became an ally of Nazi Germany in August of 1939 and f- for the period between August 1939 and the, inv- the the German invasion of Russia in the summer of 1941 many commun I mean many communists were deeply upset by this but others just towed the party line the, the, thinking if this is what Moscow wants there must be a good reason and I think probably Carrillo believed that but he certainly used that belief in in his own benefit yeah, by the time Franco died, what is Carrillo's position at that point within the kind of communist movement? Carrillo's rise throughout the party had been pretty vertiginous. Uh, he'd got rid of major rivals in 1954. In 19, um, he particularly had become very close to Khrushchev or modelled himself on Khrushchev and that uh, allowed him to eliminate the obvious Stalinists within the Spanish party. And then, by 1960, he'd taken over from La Passionaria, Dolores Ibarru, as secretary-general of the party. That's to say, the top man in the party. She'd been shunted upstairs as a kind of symbolic president of the party. So throughout the 1960s, and up up to the death of Franco, he was the secretary-general of the party, he was trying to combat the image of the party that was being used in as part of Franco's propaganda, you know, as an an utterly uh, Moscovite party. So when there were things like, for instance, the invasion 
of Czechoslovakia, he was forced, I think, and I think he was not happy about it, but he was forced, he felt he had to come out against the Soviet Union and denounce the, the, the Soviet invasion uh, of, of Czechoslovakia. So over this period, in, in the time coming up to the death of Franco, he was positioning the Communist Party as a more democratic alternative to the Franco regime. And one of the big advantages was that, of course, throughout the years of the Franco regime, the Communist Party, not thanks to Carrillo, but the Communist Party, thanks to militants inside Spain, was the only real functioning opposition to the regime. And particularly in Catalonia, there was a huge popular movement. So you've got the beginnings of a kind of popular front, they were called assemblies. So there was a, a huge movement in Catalonia called the Asamblea de Catalunya. And so he was able to take advantage of this. And then Franco died, as, as we know, in, on the 20th of November 1975. Carillo was using connections through, for instance, Ceausescu in Romania, who he was very close to, to make threats about why the Communist Party should be legalised in the very tortuous process of the move towards democratisation. Very complex negotiations throughout 1976 between the more moderate elements of the Franco regime and the more moderate elements of the left-wing opposition. And Carrillo was using this time you know, to threaten general strikes, didn't really come off. But was working very hard to create a communist presence in, in these negotiations. And at the end of 1976, he went back into Spain to live in, in Spain, clandestinely, very expensively dressed by a millionaire friend of his and, and, and wearing a wig. So his memoir of that period is called The Year of the Wig, El Año de la Peluca. And he managed to, to make a very good relationship with the prime minister in Spain at the time, Adolfo Suárez, there was an element of mutual flattery. It suited Suarez. You know, they, they played each other very, very well. And eventually a deal was made whereby the Communist Party would be legalised, which was to cause terrible problems with the army, but the Communist Party was to, to be legalised in return for it abandoning it, it all pretense to restoring the Republic and in return for loyalty to the monarchy, to effectively for swapping the Republican flag for the monarchist flag. He kind of softened the Communist <coughs> Party over this period. Again, was that more of a pragmatic decision? Had he just realised that the way the wind was blowing, or had he himself changed? There's a lot of... I think there are a lot of factors. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is that, of course, the Communist Party had become quite a mass party. In terms of feet on the ground, at the end of 1976, the Communist Party was probably the biggest party of the left. It wouldn't stay that way, but you know, there was a lot of pressure, genuine democratic pressure, from Communist Party militants in the clandestine trade unions, in these assemblies, in what were called democratic roundtables, mesas democraticas. So part of it was recognising the reality that, that the Communist Party had actually become not the sort of traditional Stalinist party. And so at a rhetorical level... Carrillo had to go along with that, but his, if you like, his Stalinist instincts remain the same. And once the first elections took place, as they did in, in, in June of 1977, and the Communist Party didn't do nearly as well as was hoped, there was a lot of discontent within the party that he'd accepted 
the monarchist line. And there was also a lot of discontent that he had, if you like, parachuted into the party the old guard from Moscow. So all the top jobs in the party went to people who'd been with him since the Civil War. So the people who'd actually done the real fighting against the regime, you know, who'd suffered, who'd gone to jail and so on, they were left feeling extremely disillusioned. And over the next few years, Carrillo seemed to have got into a position where he clearly loved the daily politics. He loved being a parliamentary deputy. He loved hobnobbing with other politicians, including friendships with people who'd previously denounced as assassins, because, for instance, Manuel Fraga, who'd been the great figure of the right, who'd been responsible for some very hardline policies. And this caused increasing discontent within the party. He'd even agreed to a big austerity programme with a reduction of wages, reduction of trade union rights and so on. So he was distancing himself ever more from his own rank and file. I mean, along the way, there were things where he recovered his popularity. The fact that he was one of three people who, during the military coup of February 1981, who didn't lie on the floor in the parliament when they were ordered to by the armed civil guards. You know, it seemed a heroic gesture. He himself explains afterwards, he said, you know, I was sure I was going to be killed. If I was going to be killed anyway, what would it look like if the leader of the Communist Party was seen to die a coward? I was going to be killed anyway, so I, I, I remained seated. So that, if you like, is a time when he was on the way down, gave him a last boost. But the continuing pressure from within his party for real democratisation, because you've also got to remember he'd become famous internationally with his book Eurocommunism and the State. And the real Spanish Communist Party was actually Eurocommunist. And they were saying, right, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Where is Eurocommunism? Where is this democratic version of communism? And of course, he tried to meet that in various congresses simply by expelling people and in the air ended up that he was finally forced out himself and really between 1983 and 1985 he was out of finally out of Spanish politics and the last nearly 30 years of his life he spent writing hundreds of articles numerous books about 20 books and weekly kind of chat shows in Spain they're called tertulias in which he rebuilt his image and built this image of a you know, heroic figure who had struggled all his life for democracy and had got the dirty end of the stick. Do you think that his actions, whatever motive they were, did his behaviour after the death of Franco, did that help create the settled Spanish democracy that exists now? Yes. If we're talking about his personal motivation, then we're, we're looking at a story of cynicism and ambition and ruthlessness. But I think it's certainly the case that his behaviour in his relations and negotiations with Adolfo Suárez on the right, with other figures on the moderate figures on the left, like Felipe González of the Socialist Party, that he and the party, you know, we're not talking a one-man band here, he and his party contributed massively to the big leap forward, which was the coming of democratic structures. Now, of course, long term, the democracy that was created in 1977 had a very, very long way to go. You can't just create a democracy mm. overnight after nearly 40 years of a savage dictatorship. 
you said before that you you've met him, I presume, on several occasions. What impression did you get when you actually met him with the man? Over many years, I had a very good relationship with him, which that's why when I did the research for the Spanish Holocaust and then particularly the part about, for, for the, this biography, the part about his hit squad within the party and, and the people he had eliminated, I was deeply shocked because the Carrillo that I knew was immensely affable. He was always tremendously affable, quite funny, told killer joke, you know, Russian jokes about the Russian system and so on. For years I could ring him up when I was writing other books to do with the Civil War, I could ring him up and ask him questions. I would always be put straight through, you know, someone, his wife or his son, it's Paul on the phone, that kind of thing. So I had a very cordial relationship with him. I wouldn't say close, but he would always answer questions. Very often, of course, it turned out that the answers were lies or, or obf obfuscations, at best fudging the issue. But it was always very pleasant, and I, w I was genuinely shocked when I found out some of the things that I did. One, inter one I feel like, an amusing thing is that it's almost impossible to see a photograph of Carrillo without his cheeks sucked in as he's inhaling deeply on a cigarette. I mean, this is a man who smoked 60 cigarettes a day. And I said to him once, how on earth do you attribute... This was when he was to be in, you know, in his 80s. Mm. I remember having lunch with him one day and I said, hey, considering how many you smoke, why do you think you're in such good nick? You know, it seems fairly miraculous. Mm. And he said, when I was in Moscow in 1936... The Russians told me to take an aspirin every day. And I've taken an aspirin every day since, and that's what's kept me going. Which I thought was really interesting. And well, he lived a long life, didn't he? <laughs> he, said did, he did, indeed. You know, he was 98 when he died. 97, I should say. So he would have been still alive when the Spanish Holocaust came out. Did you speak to him about that? What was his reaction? Oh, indeed. His reaction to the Spanish Holo my book, The Spanish Holocaust, was a wonderful example of what he was like. Because, obviously, for the first time, here was someone not of the extreme right saying that while it was absurd to blame him for the whole thing, he clearly had a high degree of responsibility. He was involved in the organisation of all of this. And for you know, someone who in Spain is regarded as relatively non-partisan, you know, foreigner, etc., this was big news. So, of course... Carrillo had lots of journalists trekking to his door or when he was on his various chat shows, people saying, you know, Preston's now shown that you, you were responsible. And his reaction, both in, actually in programmes that I heard and others that were reported to me, and in fact, in his very last book that came out about two months after he died, it was called My Last Will and Testament, in which he writes about his reaction to the book, he says, this is just so cunning. He said, I'm deeply grateful to my friend Preston because he's taught me so much I had no idea about of what went on at, those, at that time. And you think, you know, it's, at one level, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, he's kind of, you know, with one bound, he was free. Does it present a peculiar challenge, writing a biography of a man you actually obviously knew quite well compared to when you've written biographies of people that you obviously wouldn't have known as well? In theory, yes. I mean, it's always difficult. I mean, if I could, before answering specifically about Carrillo, I mean, when I wrote the biography of King Juan Carlos, I'd met him in the sense that 
you know, I'd been in a line of people mm. that he was walking along shaking hands with. So, you know, I looked him in the eye and said hello on ten occasions. No meaningful sense mm. did I know him. And I was offered the chance by his household to interview him at length. And I made what was quite a difficult decision. I refused because it seemed to me there was going to be a price. And that price was going to be censorship of whatever I wrote. So I chose not to meet him. Wrote the book entirely on the basis of interviews with other people. Obviously document documentary research and so on. And didn't meet him until after writing the book. Now in the case of Carrie, it was the other way around. I'd, I'd known him over the years. There were things that I knew he just wouldn't talk about. Once I actually started the book, which I wrote very quickly because I was using material that was already, you know, that I'd already accumulated over many, many years. What happened was that, you know, I wrote it chronologically. The childhood and the adolescence, which I'd never really written about before, although I'd written an enormous amount about the context, that was fun. And I enjoyed looking at this young man and how he clawed his way up in the early years. So that, if you like, wasn't a conflict with my prior view. So that was the first chapter. And then the next chapter was how he became a communist. And I found that all extremely interesting. I felt there was an element that, you know, that he'd really two-timed the Socialist Party. But I thought that was all very interesting. The part about his role in the atrocities during the Civil War, well, I'd already known about that, if you like. I'd come to terms with my disappointment in him, if I could put it that way. But it was when I got into the, the rest of the career and I started to see the utter ruthlessness with which he disposed, either politically or physically, with his rivals, that I found that extremely distasteful and that change my view of him dramatically and as we moved on when it got to the later part the the transition the period during which I'd, I'd known him relatively well in a way that Carrillo came back because mm. he was the Carrillo who was doing a lot for whatever reason even his motivations aside he was doing a lot that was helping consolidate democracy in Spain so it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster if you like but overall, if I had a fairly benevolent view of him before, I had a deeply critical view of him after. That was Paul Preston. The last Stalinist, The Life of Santiago Carrillo, is out now in the UK, published by William Collins. It's due to be released in the US early next year. And that's almost all for this week. Do join us again next week when we'll be paying a visit to a remarkable Georgian garden and catching up with one of the world's best-selling historical novelists, Wilbur Smith. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. 